Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how are you today? I'm very good. A little bit tired, but it's all good. It's all groovy. How are you? I am pretty much about the same, actually. No, no major complaints. That's always a good thing, right? That's good. As long as nothing major, right. we can uh, we can deal with the small stuff. I got lots of minor complaints, but nobody wants to hear them. So, <laughs> uh, Well, we could do a separate podcast for that. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure people would love to just <laughs> listen to us complain about things. Just for, wait until next hour. week's episode when we complain about this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, instead of complaining, why don't we tell people what movies we're going to be discussing in this episode? Phil, take it away. Yes, first of all, we will be delving into what happens after Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. That's from 2008. And then we will be going on a training day with uh, Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington. Indeed we shall. Now, Hellboy 2 is interesting because we haven't really done a lot of sequels per se. We've done a lot of one-off movies. Yeah. Um, but obviously there's a lot of great franchises out there that I think we're going to eventually visit. So we, you know, it may sound funny to say we're doing an after the ending for Hellboy 2 but because we can't do it for Hellboy because there was a Hellboy 2. But we kind of want to just pick up the franchise and, and see where things, you know, take place what what happens after the existing movies come to an end does that, does yeah. that make sense phil yeah it does yeah and i think the films are different enough from the comic books where we don't we're not going to get hemmed in by them they go its own path don't they yeah i agree the the stories in the in the movies are kind of com- well the first one but the second one's its own original story and so i, I feel like we can kind of go any way we want based yeah. in the the cinematic universe if you will yeah and it's uh, it is looking more and more unlikely that we will get a hellboy 3 but uh, I, be- I believe you were chatting to Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman over the weekend. Did they mention anything? I was going to say I, I did actually just speak with both uh, uh, Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro, and uh, it does not seem promising that there will be a Hellboy 3. They didn't come out and say so much that, you know, no, there will never be one. But yeah, uh, del Toro did say that basically that if somebody had offered them the money to make it, they would have made it because they said they would make Hellboy movies forever, but no one's giving them the money. So... It's yeah, uh, it's not looking too promising, unfortunately. Oh, well, at least we had two Hellboy films. That's right. That's right. Not yeah. bad for a comic that was, you know, a fairly uh, kind of, you know, non-mainstream hit, sort of an alternative hit, you know? Yeah, it is a surprise that the Hellboy did take off the way it did. Exactly. Yeah, I do like the comic, though. Very good. Sure. Yeah, we've as well as those two films, we've also got a Mighty Morphing mini feature, and we will be looking at our top ten films of 1989, which was quite a good year for movies. All right, well, uh, why don't we jump into things then, Phil? Why don't you take us through the events of Hellboy 2? Okay, well, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, it stars Ron Perlman, Selma Blair, Doug Jones. Hi, I'm Doug Jones, and I live for films. Thanks, Doug. Uh, it's also got Seth MacFarlane, Luke Goss, Anna Walton, Jeffrey Tambor, John Hurt. I was hoping to do like a quite a brief summary, but there's quite a bit to cover. So bear with yeah, me. It's it's a little bit of a complicated plot. Yeah, yeah, because there's a bit. Anyway, there's, it opens with the young Hellboy back in the day where he's told the tale of an ancient war between humans and magical creatures. Goblin blacksmiths build an indestructible mechanical army. 
the Golden Army of the title. Uh, they build it for the Elven King Baylor, and the army, the Golden Army, devastates the human forces. King Baylor feels terribly guilty about this and forms a truce with the humans. The magic charm which controls the army is broken into three. One part goes to the humans and two pieces go to the elves. Then in the present day, the elven prince Nuada, played by Luke Goss, who was also in uh, Blade 2, he declares war on humanity and gets a piece of the crown by unleashing a horde of tooth fairies in auction. He ends up killing his father for the second piece and his twin sister, Princess Nuala, played by Anna Walton, she escapes with the third. Uh, meanwhile, Hellboy's having problems with Liz. His relationship isn't going too well. Uh, Liz is played by Selma Blair and Hellboy is Ron Pellman. And he's frustrated with having to stay hidden from the world at large. But he reveals himself to the world during the Tooth Fairy investigation. And he's on the TV and he's uh, interviewed and everything like that. So there's no hiding it now. Ape Sapien, played by Doug Jones. Hi, I'm Doug Jones. And I live for films. Thanks again, Doug. Declares Liz is pregnant. Johan Kroos, meanwhile... Played, voiced by Seth MacFarlane. He's the guy who's in the... Uh, he's basically just ectoplasm or mist in a, in a super suit. He is appointed as the new leader. Uh, Princess Nuala finds a map to the Golden Army. And Abe finds Nuala. And they fall in love, as they do. One's an elf, one's a, an amphibious creature. Hellboy fights a troll and a forest elemental. Uh, big battles commence and the, the forest elemental seems excellent. Uh, Nuala tracks Nuala to the BPRDHQ. As they share a mystical bond, they share the same thoughts and also wounds. Uh, Prince Nuada wounds Hellboy with a magic spear, where the point will eventually reach his heart. And he escapes with Nuala, but says he will exchange her for the, the missing crown piece. Liz, Abe and Krauss take the injured Hellboy to Northern Ireland, where the Golden Army is, loca is located. There they meet the Angel of Death, who's been waiting for them. He warns that Hellboy will doom humanity if he lives, and Liz will suffer the most from it. Liz pleads for Hellboy's life. And the angel removes the spear shards and tells Liz to give Hellboy a reason to live. She tells him he will be a father and he recovers. They track down Nuada and Abe gives him the last piece of the crown for Nuala's life. But Nuada awakens the Golden Army to take down humanity and battle commences. Hellboy challenges Nuada for the crown because Hellboy is also a prince of hell. Hellboy wins and spares Nuada's life but Nuada tries to stab him because he's a bit of a dodgy geezer. But Nuala kills herself to stop Nuada. And while she, lay, she lays there dying, Nuada tells Hellboy he will have to choose whether humans or magical beings must die. Liz melts the crown so the Golden Army can no longer be used. And we, it ends with Hellboy, Liz, Abe and Johan resigning from the BPRD. And Liz tells Hellboy that they are having twins and they throw back their heads and smile, freeze frame. Whew. And that's Hellboy too. Nicely done. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I also forgot to say that the Angel of Death was also played by Doug Jones. Hi, I'm Doug Jones, and I live for films. Thanks again, Doug. Boy, Doug Jones, he really lives for films, doesn't he? He certainly does. He does. Well, don't we all? I think so. I think on this yeah. podcast, anyway. Yes. <laughs> okay, so that was our, that was a brief, well, slightly longer than brief uh, summary of the film. But what have you got for your day after? All right, well, the day after, Hellboy, Liz, Abe, and Johan retire back to Hellboy's place and try to figure out what to do next. They toss around a lot of different ideas. A food cart called Hellboy's House of Hellishly Good Hot Dogs, <laughs> a pet lodge called Strauss's House of Mouse, a soda company called Sapien's Sweet Sarsaparillas, and even a hot sauce company called Liz's Fiery Temper, but none of them really grabbed them. 
They realize the only thing they're good at is fighting paranormal threats, so they decide to call a press conference. The number of people from the press that show up is staggering. There are thousands of journalists in attendance. Hellboy gives an interview and tells the world about his existence and his origins, minus the Nazi part. <laughs> you know, that's just not good PR to, yeah, you know, yeah, to bring up yeah. the Nazis. Uh, he also reveals that he and Liz and Abe and Johan are going into business for hire to defeat paranormal threats that might arise. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Excellent. I like it. How about your day after? Okay, my day after is quite a brief one, but uh, Hellboy, Liz, Abe and Johan, as they're in Northern Ireland at the end of the film, they go to the nearest Irish pub and spend the day drinking. Obviously, Liz being pregnant, she sticks to soft drinks, and Johan just absorbs the essence of the drink, but in his own way he gets a bit tipsy. Hellboy gets absolutely trashed, and Abe drinks a little bit more than he wanted to. But he, they all have a good time. Tom Manning, who was the uh, leader of the BPRD, which is the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defence, and in the film Manning was played by Jeffrey Tambor. He finds them sitting in the pub, and he tries to convince them one last time to come back, but they're having none of it, and Manning ends up getting drunk with them, uh, with Hellboy and Abe, and they all have a great night and end up singing karaoke until the dawn. And that's my, my day after. Very nice, I like it. Thank you. Sounds like that would be a fun, a fun pub to be in that night. Yeah, could you just imagine walking into into a pub and <laughs> Hellboy and Abe and Johan getting right. drunk? Be very good. Uh, what about your immediate aftermath? All right, well, Abe rents an office for Hellboy and the crew to set up in. They open up their business and are inundated with calls. Unfortunately, most of them are crackpots who are hearing things or just want to meet Hellboy and the team. Eventually, they realize they're not really accomplishing anything, and they shut the office down after just a couple of months. The day after the office closes, Tom Manning comes to visit them and offers to reinstate them at the BPRD. Reluctantly, they agree, but they lay down some provisions that must be instated before they'll come back, things that will improve the BPRD and reduce the amount of interfering by management. Tom agrees to all of their changes, but as he leads the team out to the waiting car that he's brought for them, his eyes quickly flash solid black and an evil smile creeps across his face. Well, reading between the lines, I think, <laughs> I think things are going to go south for them. I have no idea why you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. All right, let's, okay. hear, let's hear your immediate aftermath then. Okay, my immediate aftermath. A uh, few months have passed. I think you can guess how many because the twins are now born. A boy and a girl called Damien and Lilith. Both appear human, but turn demonic when they're angry or upset. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Every Obviously, nightmare. when they're little babies, that happens quite a bit. But yeah. they're not burning things down at the moment, and they're not, they haven't got super strength. They're just, their appearance changes, but Hellboy and Liz are dealing with it. Hellboy, Liz, and Abe and Johan all now live in New York City. They live above in a cut bookshop owned by Abe and Johan, who bought it from a another paranormal investigator called Race Dance. Nice. <laughs> Hellboy and Liz have opened up a bakery and coffee shop next door, which they call Hell's Pantry. <laughs> it is frequented by both humans and mystical creatures. The team still do investigate paranormal mysteries and have consulted with the BPRD on occasion, but life is pretty normal for them all. The, uh, the bakery and bookshop is a place where people of all races, types and dimensions mix and get along well. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like it very much. Thank you. Okay, then. So we're on to the long term. What's happening with Manning and his demonic eyes? All right. Well, things at the BPRD seem good. Liz gives birth to her and Hellboy's twins, while Hellboy, Abe, and Johan lead a new team in their fight against the forces of evil. They have four new team members. Gizmo, a wise mogwai who is the last of his race. Oh, Celine, like a vampire death dealer who looks suspiciously like Kate Beckinsale. 
and Sam and Dean Winchester, brothers who don't have any mystical powers but have the experience of two lifetimes of fighting supernatural forces. When a potentially world-ending threat arises in the form of a 40-story high monster, the team sets off to fight it. Manning insists on coming along, and the team doesn't question him. But when they get there, Manning starts chanting and takes control of the rampaging creature. He reveals to the team that he hasn't actually been Manning since after the team left the BPRD, when he was possessed by a demon. He's been secretly plotting against Hellboy and his team. With the BPRD out of the way, he'll have free reign to take over the world. The monster then attacks the team directly and takes most of them out of commission quickly. Just as it looks like they're all about to die, Manning briefly reclaims his body. He tells Hellboy to kill him, and Hellboy gets off a single shot with the big baby while Manning has his mystic defenses dropped, killing him instantly. Without Manning's guidance, the creature becomes mindless again and is quickly defeated. The team returns to the BPRD intact, and Liz ultimately ends up taking over leadership of the organization. The fight goes on. Very nice. And there you go. I like the team, yeah. Yeah, right? A little little fun It'd be good having Gizmo in that kind of aspect of things, yeah? Because Gizmo knew his stuff, but yeah. I don't know exactly what he would bring to the team, to be honest with you. I just kind of thought the idea of this cool little, like, super smart, little tiny, fuzzy thingy on the team, you know, like, I don't know. He's kind of like the the wise, you know, lead, like the like the Merlin type, you know, who's yeah, kind of behind or, the scenes. Or you could go another way. I could you could see him being like the computer expert for some reason. Oh yeah, right. I, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I but I like it. And the Winchester's always good to have them involved. Yeah, well, I figure they're they're pretty awesome. So yeah. I had to squeeze them in there somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up the Hellboy two then. Let's hear your long term. Okay, Hell's Pantry has proven a huge success, and they now have numerous sites all over the U.S with plans to spread worldwide. It is a place of peace and brings the world of humans and magic together. The Angel of Death, who visits the New York City uh, Hell's Pantry every blood moon, admits he was totally wrong with his prophecy. Hellboys brought peace to the world and the magical creatures and humans live on. And the Angel of Death always says the bear claws are to die for. <laughs> and that's my Yeah. <laughs> I, I just like got it. I just got got the vision of it being like a half hour comedy show almost where <laughs> you just see Hellboy and everybody in this in this diner or in the coffee shop or the bookshop. I I would watch that show. Yeah. In I, a I think it'd be brilliant. Yeah. yeah, they could they could have like one or two of them would come back saying, "Wow, that last mission was a tricky one, wasn't it?" But you know, it's always in the uh, in the diner. Right, right. I love it. I think that's. I think you should pitch that. Actually, that's a great idea. Yeah. Well, Guillermo, you're probably listening. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Very cool. Okay. Well, uh, that wraps up then uh, our endings for Hellboy 2. How about some some golden trivia about the Golden Army? Uh, The young Hellboy was played by an adult woman. Uh, Her name is Monsi Reby. I don't think that's pronounced right, so apologies. Uh, Seth MacFarlane based the voice of Johann Krauss on Jeremy Irons' character from Die Hard with a Vengeance. Hmm. And I can really see that once I've read that. Uh, when in costumes, Abe Sapien, the Chamberlain, or the Angel of Death, Doug Jones. Hi, I'm Doug Jones, and I live for films. Okay, thanks, Doug. Yeah, yeah, we uh, get it, Doug. We yeah, get it. Yeah. Thanks. In the middle, of, in the middle of this bit, uh, he was almost totally blind and deaf from the prosthetic pieces. As with the first film, none of the cast members' names were written on the posters or mentioned in the trailers or shown in the opening credits. Something which I hadn't realized at the time. No, I, I didn't either. That's interesting. Yeah. I quite like that, though, dealing with, you know, Hellboy and Abe as if they're the real things. I right. like when they do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the actor Roy Dotris, who played King Balor, he starred with uh, Ron Perlman in the Beauty and the Beast TV show from yep. way, way back. Yep. 
and the female reporter interviewing Hellboy outside the auction house was Ron Perlman's daughter, Blake Perlman. Oh, that's fun. But yeah, it's a great film. Uh, Ron Perlman and Doug Jones. Hi, I'm Doug Jones, and I live for films. Okay, Doug, we get it. Th thanks, Doug. Okay. Thanks. Well, yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, they do, do great things, and I would like to see them red and blue together once more at some point in the future. Yes, absolutely. So that's Hellboy 2. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's uh, my daughter. She loves the film as well. I think she first watched it, though, when she was about, must have been about four. Wow. But she loves it. She, okay. She was on, was on one day. Didn't mean it to watch it, but she really enjoyed it. She thought it was funny. Huh, there you go. And she liked the big, uh, what is it, forest elemental thing. Right, right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Excellent. All right. So that's Hellboy 2. Why don't we move on then to Training Day? Yes, yes, yes. Well, in, uh, in, in keeping with the spirit of the film, I've decided to pepper my uh, synopsis and endings with about 37 F-bombs, just so that we could, you know, kind of make it feel authentic, so. Well, I could give you one of the trivia facts now about it, then, <laughs> I want to know how many F-bombs we used. Sure, sure, go ahead. Two, 211. Wow. Yeah. All right, well, there we just go. So, so that's how we're going to do it tonight. So training, f no, not really. <laughs> um <clears throat> So Training Day, 2001, starring Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke, Eva Mendez, and Scott Glenn. Yeah, no Doug Jones in this one. No, no, no Doug Jones. Hi, I'm Doug Jones, and I live for films. Oh, for God's sake, Doug, you should have gone by now. <laughs> let it go, Doug, let it go. So Training Day follows a 24-hour period in the life of rookie police officer Jake Hoyt, played by Ethan Hawke, as he's evaluated by senior narcotics officer Alonzo Harris, played by Denzel Washington, in a role that he won an Oscar for. They confiscate some drugs from a drug dealer, and Alonzo tells Jake to take a hit of marijuana. Jake refuses, but Alonzo puts a gun to his head and tells him that not being able to use drugs could get him killed by a drug dealer. So Jake reluctantly does smoke the marijuana. Next, Jake breaks up a couple of guys assaulting a high school student named Letty, but Alonzo lets them go after taking their cash and drugs, saying that street justice will take care of the rest. Jake picks up Letty's wallet in the aftermath. Alonzo then uses a fake search warrant to steal cash from a drug dealer, but his wife notices it's fake and calls out to nearby gang members who start firing on Jake and Alonzo, nearly killing them. After Alonzo reveals he has some high-up connections within police officials and mobsters, Alonzo takes Jake as he and four other narcotics officers rob a drug dealer. Alonzo kills the drug dealer and stages it to look like a justified shooting. Jake refuses to take his share of the money and threatens to expose them, but Alonzo reminds him of the dope that he smoked and says that drug testing will reveal it, but that he can fix it. Jake reluctantly agrees to cooperate. At another meeting with a drug dealer named Smiley, Jake finally learns the truth. Alonzo must pay $1 million to the Russian mob or he will be killed. It turns out Alonzo paid Smiley to kill Jake, but he finds Letty's wallet and confirms that Jake saved her, so he lets Jake go. Jake tracks down Alonzo and chases him and corners him, and Alonzo tries to turn the crowd of nearby gang members against Jake, but they let Jake go as they're pretty much over Alonzo and the way that he disrespects them and steals from them and takes advantage of them. Jake takes Alonzo's money as evidence against him. Alonzo attempts to flee via the airport, but he's killed by a Russian mafia hitman. The film ends with Jake listening to the news about Alonzo's death on the radio as they tout him as a heroic police officer. And that is Training Day. Excellent. Well done. That's a tough one to summarize, but you did it. Yeah, there was about 17 other meetings with drug dealers where things got stolen, yeah. but I really tried to boil it down a bit. Yeah, excellent. All right. So, so Phil, take us through your day after. Okay. Uh, Jake spends a few hours doing nothing, trying to get his head together after the events of the previous day. He then begins writing a full report of what Alonzo had been up to and what he was involved in. 
He knows it's uh, he's got to do it well, otherwise he could get he could get into trouble for lots of the things that went on. He does uh, he does the best he can. He also realizes that he did actually learn quite a bit from Alonso, mainly how not to act as a police officer. But that's uh, that's my day after. I like it. That makes sense. Yes, thank you. What's, right. uh, what have you got for your day after? All right. Well, Jake wrestles with what to do. He turned the money in as evidence, but he knows all of Alonzo's affairs have been covered up, and the money has probably been pocketed by the higher-ups by now. He schedules a meeting the next day with the police chief. In veiled terms, he tells the chief that he knows about the corruption in the department, but he's not going to be a problem. He just wants to get out on the streets and do good. So the chief and he come to sort of an unspoken agreement. Jake will stay out of the higher-ups' business affairs, and they'll leave him alone to clean up the streets the way he sees fit. They partner him with Officer Frank Costello, an older officer who's close to retirement. Jake is reluctant at first, but he soon learns that Costello was a legend in the department back in the 60s before the corruption set in. And while he's old, he's also got integrity and courage. Together, they hit the streets. Nice. And that's my day after. Oh, brilliant. All right. So, Phil, how about your immediate aftermath? All right, then. My, uh, mine is uh, Jake's testimony and report about Alonzo was taken, but nothing really happens. With Alonzo being referenced as a hero, as a heroic cop when he was shot, uh, they don't want to upset the narrative they've set up. Jake is disgusted, but not surprised. He's also not surprised when an internal affairs officer by the name of Raymond Avila, who looks an awful lot like Andy Garcia, <laughs> nice. uh, turns up to start looking into uh, what went on and the various accusations that were put in the report. But surprisingly, they actually get on quite well, and Avila senses the frustration Jake feels about Alonso's case. Avila gives a favourable report, but Jake is given dead-end duties and looked down on by his fellow officers. He finds it tough going, but he still carries on and does the best job he can day after day. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Very nice. Okay. What have you got for your immediate aftermath? Well, as Jake and Costello patrol, they help clean up the streets. They bust drug dealers, stop assaults, investigate murders, and generally do what good cops should. Occasionally, Jake lets a smaller crime slide if it will help him net a bigger fish. Slowly, the gang members on the streets start to trust and respect Jake and Costello in a way that they didn't with Alonzo. They still don't like him because he's the police, but they also know that he'll never shake them down, blackmail them, or steal from them. They basically figure out that if they stay out of his way and off the streets, he won't chase them down. With this weird sort of symbiotic relationship at play, the streets of Los Angeles start to become a safer place. Six months or so later, after Jake and Costello pull over a reckless driver who appears to be high, the man pulls out a gun and shoots Costello at point-blank range. Oh, no, I like Costello. I did, too. <laughs> oh. The driver peels away, and Jake, rather than give chase, holds Frank in his arms as his life slips away. Before he dies, Costello tells him, You're the best cop I ever worked with, kid. Jake is devastated. The next day, there's a knock at Jake's door. Several leaders of the local gangs are there with the man who killed Costello in handcuffs. He's beaten and bloodied, but alive. They drop the man at Jake's feet. Jake nods at them, and they nod back in a symbol of mutual respect. And then they leave. Jake books Costello's murderer. And that's my immediate aftermath. Well, I'd watch the hell out of that. <laughs> yeah, kind of cool, right? I was picturing that scene then with him. Oh, that'd be good, yeah. I, I kind of like that idea, right? The gang members yeah. kind of like gets there showing him their respect, you know, by... Yeah. Because they knew that like Costello was a good dude, so they wanted to sort of, you know... You know, they felt like they owed Frank, Jake a little something. I, I don't know. I, I thought it was cool, too. So I'm glad, I'm glad yeah, you liked uh, it. I like that, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. All right, so how about your long term, then? Okay, Jake tries to be the best police officer he can be, but he's still looked down upon by his fellow officers. The internal affairs investigation turned up nothing, uh, so it just went down on record that he was investigated. Nothing comes of it. Jake ends up meeting and falling in love with a, a woman by the name of Ellen. She's a doctor and was in L.A. visiting family, but she has to return to Detroit. Jake puts in a transfer request and it is swiftly granted because the other cops just want him out of there. He moves to Detroit and 
A few months later, he is married to Ellen. They have a happy life together, but are unable to have any children. But they both sink themselves into the jobs. They have a nice life. Then, one day, just after Christmas, Jake, now a sergeant, heads off to work. Sadly, the police station is being stationed and it's closing down, and he has resigned to the fate of what's going to happen. He'll still be a cop. He'll be moved to another place, but as he's driving there, he's surprised to think of his day with Alonzo as he pulls up outside Precinct 13. And that's my long term. I like how you did that. Yes. A little, uh, especially because, uh, you know, for people who may not know, Ethan Hawke starred in the remake of Assault on Precinct 13. Yes. Uh, which I, the original is is one of my favorite action movies of all time. Uh, but I actually think that the remake is 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 quite good for what it is. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it, yeah. The, the, was, my, uh... my biggest problem with the remake is how they they go outside this, like, Detroit, like, police station. They end up in a forest. And I'm like, where? Yeah, yeah. Where are the forests in downtown Detroit exactly? Now, I don't know Detroit that well, so maybe it is. It, 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 it did seem a bit weird, that, because it, did, it didn't really set up the forest earlier on. It didn't give, like, any scenes of it, did they, or anything? No, nothing, exactly. So it's definitely a little out of place. But other than that, it's actually a pretty good remake. So uh, so I like how you tied those together. That's uh, That's pretty cool. Well, and also the fact that Ethan Hawke's character in Assault on Precinct 13 is also called Jake. Oh, really? I didn't catch that. Yeah. That's interesting. Which is, I only did that when I was looking into it. I thought, what's he called? And yeah, it's Jake. Different surname, but... Yeah, but still, that's you know. pretty cool. In, yeah, our, yeah. in our universe, that definitely works. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's what we call a gimme. Yeah. It's a, when, he's, when he moved to Detroit, he went by his, uh, his middle name. Right. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe he changed his name so that nobody from you know, the L.A. Police Department would, would, that's what he know, did. would that's get revenge what he did, on yeah. him. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, what have you got then for your long term? Okay. So over the next 10 years or so, Jake continues doing what he's been doing. He wins several awards from the police department, but he never gets promoted. And he knows why. The brass don't want him anywhere near the corruption at the top levels. They know he's too principled and he would eventually take them down if he became privy to their secrets. But Jake has lulled them into a false sense of security. Oh, go ahead, Jake. You can do it. <laughs> In a year when the incumbent police chief expects to walk into office yet again, Jake suddenly runs for office. <laughs> the gang leaders mobilize their gang members to get the word out. And when the election comes, Jake wins a huge upset when all of the previously ignored and marginalized minorities in the city turn out to vote. With Jake installed as the new police chief, he quickly sweeps the department and flushes out the bad elements in one fell swoop. With several gang members providing unofficial security for Jake and his family safely out of town, Jake survives several attempts on his life in retaliation. Within months, he has all of the corrupt police behind bars or on the run, and he begins to work to turn the police department around. The gangs know he won't give them a free pass, but they also know he'll be fair and just, and the city continues on with the balance between the police and the gangs restored. And that's the end. I like that. That's, uh, that, that, that would all definitely work as a film. Thanks. Yeah, I like yeah. That. I mean, I you know, I had, I had to like you know, I had to balance it out to the point where obviously he's not going to just let the, these gang members have free reign. You know what I mean? Um, but I think yeah, but it's right of, to think yeah, treat them fairly. They'd respect that, right? Exactly. You know, Alonzo was you know stealing all their money and everything and shaking them down. I think it's kind of now to that point where it's like you know they know if they get caught doing a crime they're going to get busted, but they also know that no one's going to come you know breaking down their door in the middle of the night and and yeah. beating them up and stealing their money. So yeah, cool. Oh, very good. Excellent. All right, Phil, why don't you take us through your trivia day then? Okay, my trivia day. <laughs> uh, we've already said the F word was used 211 times. That is a lot of times. And the film had a running time of 122 minutes. So so almost yeah. two per minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, the coffee shop that you see at the beginning of the film was also seen in other movies such as Seven, Gone in 60 Seconds, Ghost World, and Catch Me If You Can. And it's called The Quality Cafe. 
Davis Guggenheim was set to direct and Samuel L. Jackson and Matt Damon was going to be in his version. However, when Denzel Washington accepted the role, he asked for Guggenheim to be replaced. It was the only time an African-American won Best Actor Oscar as directed by another African-American. David Ayer was the only writer to work on the script. Uh, Other people who were going to be possibly in the roles, but obviously weren't, Alonzo could have been Bruce Willis, Gary Sinise or Tom Sizemore. And Jake could have been Eminem, Tobey Maguire, Christian Bale or Mark Wahlberg. Interesting. All interesting, yeah. The Eminem one was interesting, but he went off to do 8 Mile, I think, around at the same time. Right, which which worked out pretty well for him. That movie was a big yeah. hit. But the Alonzo ones, I think they went the right way with Denzel. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's Training Day. All right. Very nice. So there you go. So Training Day and Hellboy 2, those were our endings. If you have thoughts on them or like to share your own endings, we'll tell you how to do that in just a little bit. But for now, why don't we move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature? Yes. <laughs> so, Phil, tell people, what do we have in store for them today? Well, this one was inspired by Hellboy, and it's called Made Up About Makeup. I like it. Yes. It's uh, it's all about the prosthetics, you know, and the special, you know, the wonderful job that all the makeup artists do and the special effects people do to make the, the actors look different. And Hellboy and Ape Sapien like some of the extreme versions, but it's used in many different ways. It can be just small little bits of prosthetics, full body suits, a mask, whatever. But we thought we'd just talk about a few of our favorites. Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously a lengthy list. I mean, we could do a whole episode about, you know, movie prosthetics, but these are just a couple that sort of stood out for us. So, uh, Phil, do you want to, do you want to lead off? You want me to lead off? Uh, no, I'll go first. I'll, right. uh, I'm going to go back to 1968 and the original Planet of the Apes. An excellent choice, of course. It's uh, one of my yeah. favorite movies of all time. And, oh and I think clearly a landmark in prosthetic makeup. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it looks, I mean, you watch it now and if if you weren't aware of it, it does look a little, it could be a little bit ropey, but when you stop and look, 1968, and they've got these masks on, and they look like monkeys, and the mouth moves and everything, and they can show the emotion with their eyes, and there's loads of them all made up. It's a, it's an astonishing feat when you think about it. I, I agree. I think they look fantastic, especially considering the time period. Yeah. I mean, because there's other films from around about them, the special effects are just, just dreadful, but uh, yeah, they really nailed it with that one. An excellent choice, and, and and it interestingly leads into my choice because my pick was actually for Tim Burton's 2001 version of Planet of the Apes. Mm. Uh, and the reason I picked that, obviously, it's it's not a film I'm particularly enamored with uh, as a no. fan, as a diehard Planet of the Apes fan. It's it's not my yeah, favorite. Same with I me. do think the original is is you know just a masterpiece. Yeah, and and obviously I agree with you. I think that the special effects in the original are you know groundbreaking. Um, but when I was trying to think of of you know. Im- really impressive prosthetics. I, I thought that the original Apes prosthetics are a little limited uh, just in terms of movement and stuff yeah. like that. And then the yeah. new films, they're all computer generated. But in the Burton version, they use prosthetic makeups, but they managed to get a lot more movement with the uh, with the facial structures. And so I, I do think that for as many flaws as that movie has, uh, and it has plenty, I think that the, <laughs> oh, yeah, the apes look utterly fantastic. So um, so that was my that's my pick for one of the best prosthetics. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it. Yeah, the film is pretty lousy, but yeah, the the prosthetics and the makeup is astounding on that. Yeah, I mean, I just remember when I first saw the trailers for it, and I was like, oh, my God, this could be the best Planet of the Apes movie ever. Yeah, I was the same. And it wasn't. But it just – it looked so good. I mean, it is a great-looking film, you know, so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's my pick. Great stuff. Okay, my second pick is The Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum, because uh, it's – you know, it's guy goes into pod, fly in the pod, and Brundlefly comes out. But the good thing is it's it's a slow change – 
and it's mainly done by the acting to begin with, you know, his, his attitude and everything. Right. But then as, as it moves on, we've got the little bits and pieces, you know, bits fall off him and the change takes place and he just looks disgusting just before he goes full fly. But uh, it's it's icky. It's, you don't want to touch it. It's disgusting, which is pretty much what, what you think of flies. So they did an excellent job. Yeah. And then when you find these, it's a whole different thing when you see the final Brundle fly. That's, you know, that's the guy's... That's time for another list, but uh, yeah, the, the right. makeup on Jeff Goldblum was uh, was scarily good. Absolutely. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. All right, well, my next pick is Tim Curry in Legend, um, another film I don't really like. It's an early Ridley Scott fantasy epic with Tom Cruise, and uh, Tim Curry plays the devil. And yes. so uh, it's The only actually, good thing about the film, I think. Yes, yes. It's not a movie I like at all, and we all know how I feel about Ridley Scott, but, um, mm. it, it, but Tim Curry looks amazing I mean, he's got those two giant red horns and he's he's gigantic and and if you don't know what he looks like look him up and, and watch a clip of him he he's really something else in that role but just the look of the way they visualized bringing the devil to life it's not like your typical he's got a couple you know little horns and like a tuxedo with like a little forked right. tail i mean he's like a big like they, monstrous they are huge demon. horns aren't they yeah yeah, so I think he looks great, and and when I first watched that film, um, you know, as a as a younger man, uh, I was a kid. Let's face it. Yeah, I don't know that I was like scared, like I didn't have nightmares keep me up at night, but I I certainly never doubted for a minute that that he was the devil. You know, it was it was yeah, well, it's, very realistic. It's, it's pretty much every child's vision of the the devil. Right. You know, when you're growing up, it's that's sort of what you imagine it, don't you? The big, the big red devil with the big horns yeah exactly exactly but yeah so. but yeah i remember i remember seeing it when i was a kid as well also me Sarah was in it as well yep. which mm-hmm. i always remember when i was young right right <laughs> but uh it's it's pretty it's a weird film isn't it extremely legend yeah but uh he was every time tim curry was on as the darkness or the devil or whatever he was called the darkness in the film i think but i think so yeah i just i mean he was let's face it he was the devil yeah but uh, every time he was on it that, that was the film was lifted yeah yeah definitely okay do you want to do one more each or if you leave it yeah down? let's do yeah. one more Okay, my next last one. I'm going to go with one which it's not it's not as big as the others, but I'm going to go with the Dark Knight and Heath Ledger. I did consider that actually because that is a, that's a good yeah. choice for sure. Yeah, because he's obviously he's got the uh, the Joker makeup on, which gets much way, but it's the uh, the scars. You know, how, how, do you want to know how I got my scars? All right. that stuff. Right. It's uh, it's just around his mouth mainly, but it's pulling his mouth up a little bit, and it's just it's really well done. Especially you see it you see it best when he's. Uh, He's pretending to be one of the police officers doing the twenty-one gun salute yep. for Gordon. You see, you see him without the the clown makeup on, but uh, I just think it works really well. Just adds that final little touch to it, which uh, it sort of needed for sure. And obviously, obviously with Heath Ledger's performance as yeah. well, it uh, did great things. But I just thought that after the full body suits and mask, I thought I'd go with uh, something a bit simpler. Sure, sure. Excellent so that's, choice. That's that Very one. good. Well, I also went simpler for my last choice uh, and also uh, a little unconventional. Ooh. And it is uh, Eddie Murphy in Coming to America. <laughs> uh, and there is a scene where they're in, in the barbershop and he plays an old yeah, yeah. Uh, white Jewish guy named Saul. Yes, and yeah. I mean, just turning Eddie Murphy into a white guy right there is a pretty impressive feat. But doing it so convincingly uh, and then with his performance adding to it, uh, it, it's really pretty stunning. I mean, it was definitely one of those things where it was kind of like an early Easter. Egg, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when you were watching the movie the first time, a lot of people had no idea that was Eddie Murphy. It wasn't one of those things where it was so obvious that you were like, oh, look, it's Eddie Murphy. Like a lot of people had no idea that that he played like a bunch of other minor characters in the film because the makeup was so impressive. So uh, so that, I thought well, that deserved to mention. Oh, definitely. I mean, even with like the nutty professor and the clumps, I mean, whatever you – I mean, the films are pretty right. pretty right. naff to be honest. But the, uh, the, 
the makeup and the prosthetics they use for all the characters yeah. on Eddie Murphy is just brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's a uh, there's uh, some nice little things there. But there's obviously many many more. If uh, we've only just yeah barely scratched exactly. the surface. But if uh, if you want to let us know your favourite prosthetics movie makeup, uh, let us know, and you can get in touch in all the usual places, which we'll mention near the end. Sounds good. All right. Well, moving on then, let's jump back to 1989. As we said earlier, a terrific year for movies. Uh, but uh, yes. before we get into those, why don't you take us back in time, Phil, and tell us what the world was like back in 1989. Back in 1989, things were going on there. Uh, the British Prime Minister was Margaret Thatcher, and the President was, the, was Big Daddy George H.W. Bush. Uh, Emperor Hirohito died, and Akihito became the 125th Emperor of Japan. Ted Bundy was executed by electric chair. Sky Television, PLC, launched in Europe. A fatwa was called for Salman Rushdie over the satanic verses. Time, Inc. and Warner Communications merged to become Time Warner. Tim Berners-Lee produced a proposal document that will become the blueprint for something called the World Wide Web. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Tim, that's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to my, that was 1989. How much the world's changed? Pretty crazy, isn't it? Uh, we also had the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the Hillsborough disaster over here in Britain. Uh, genetic modification of adult humans was tried for the first time with gene tagging. We had the whole Tiananmen Square thing going on with Tankman standing in front of those tanks. Still unknown, but uh, I think he changed the world a bit there. Seinfeld premiered. The Game Boy and the Sega Genesis were released in the US. Voyager 2 past Neptune. And the last two Japanese World War II holdout troops surrendered. We lost some uh, legends because these people passed away in 1989. Mel Blanc, Betty Davis, Salvador Dali, Daphne du Maurier, Lucille Ball, Laurence Olivier, Sergio Leone and Lee Van Cleef. And Clint Eastwood's still alive. Right. That's crazy. And are you ready to feel old, Mike? I sure am. Okay, these were some of the people born in 1989. Uh, Nina Dobrev, Elizabeth Olsen. Jake Lloyd, Anton Yelchin, Lily Collins, Imogen Poots, Matthew Lewis, Daniel Radcliffe, uh, Juno Temple, Brie Larson, Dakota Johnson, Taron Edgerton, Nicholas Holt, and Amir Wazikowska. Wow. Interesting. Well, that's, that's pretty much like the, the current crop of, yeah, it's a, <laughs> of actors, right. isn't it? Kind of a lot of A-list current actor, young actors yeah. in there right now, isn't it? Yeah, 1989, cool. a good year for actors. Yeah, for sure. It's for sad, sure. though, that we've... We've lived through the birth and death of Anton Yelchin. It is. When you said his name, I, I thought the exact same thing. It, it's sad that any of the actors who were born in such a recent year have, have passed away. So yeah. uh, as, as as everyone knows, we're big uh, Anton fans. And, uh, uh, you know, every time he comes up on the show, I'll, I'll be a little yeah. bit sad. Yeah, same here. But that's, uh, that was 1989. All right. Well, let's move on to happier topics then. Let's get into yes. our films. Yeah, okay. Then do you want to start us off with your number 10? Absolutely. So my number 10 is... Uh, well, it's Leviathan, which is a uh, an underwater oh, yeah, yeah, horror movie yeah. about a mysterious organism wreaking havoc on an underwater base. And um, this is just one of those movies that I have a soft spot for. It is not a great movie. It probably shouldn't have even made my top ten. Um, <laughs> and yet I was just so captured by it when it came out. Like I, I wanted to see it so badly. I thought the poster art was amazing. I loved the trailer. I was so enamored with it. And I, I finally saw it on video, and I, and I enjoyed it. I, I wasn't blown away by it. I don't think it was quite the move. I don't think it lived up to the hype I had built up yeah, in my head. Yeah. But, you know, it's just one of those things I go back and rewatch it every couple of years. Is that the one that stars Greg Evigan? Uh, no, that is Deep Star Six, which came out at the oh, same yeah, time yeah. and was right, also yeah, an yeah. underwater creature movie, but about a 
a tenth of the budget of Leviathan. Yeah, Deep Star yeah. Six actually holds up as a really terrible movie, even though I liked it when I was young. But I've watched it recently, and it's horrible. But Leviathan holds up as actually still being a pretty good uh, flick. It has um, it has Peter Weller, um, it has oh, Amanda Pays and Ernie yeah. Hudson in it, and um, you know it's so I watched you know it came out on Blu-ray a couple of years ago. I watched it again. I, I still enjoy it. It's just one of those films. Like I said, I, I, even as I watch it and I go, this isn't really that good. I still like it. I still enjoy it. I just, like I said, I have a soft spot for it. So that's my number 10. Oh, I remember it now. Yeah, I always thought to get it mixed in with uh, Deep Star 6, yeah. Yeah. But no, I remember it now, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely better than Deep Star 6. Oh, for sure. Good good pick, yeah. I thought I'd watch it actually now. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, it's <laughs> so, fun for what it is. Sometimes you can't, you can't beat a good B movie. That's right. Exactly. Okay. My number 10 is uh, On Dry Land. It is Major League. Uh-huh. Stars Tom Berenger, Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes. Corbin Burnson, uh, and it's just, I don't know what it is. It's, uh, as we mentioned before, doing baseball films, it's not really a big fan of the sport, but baseball movies always seem to do the trick. And me and my brother watched the hell out of this one. Yeah. It was just uh, just the characters coming together. Uh, Charlie Sheen as Wild Thing. It was silly, it was stupid, but I just, you know, it's a team of underdogs getting pulled together, doing what they do. Everybody loves an underdog story. Sure. And this one did it well, and we watched it many, many times. I like it. Good pick. A great film. Yeah. Didn't make my list. Uh, it was on my short list, though, for consideration. So Yeah, yeah. All right. well, loads of films this year on my short list. Well, right, exactly. Yeah. Just you couldn't fit them all in. There were so many good ones. No. So Okay, my number nine, then, is Heathers, one of the original cult classic black comedies starring Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. And, um, you know, I was just of that age where, you know, I was I was 14 when Heathers came out, and it was one of those movies about these kind of, you know, alternative, cool, not great people in high school kind of thing. You know, it was one of those things where you could watch it and be like, yeah, I want to be like those people, even though they were all kind of terrible. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it just, and you know, know you, you sort of adopted some of the speech patterns, maybe you picked up a couple of catchphrases from the movie. And, you know, it's just, it's not a laugh out loud movie, but there are some really funny parts to it. And it's, it's, it definitely captured a part of the high school experience, uh, you know, in, yeah. in some way, even though it's a very stylized and very arch, but uh, it is a movie that I, I have a great affinity for. No, it's a great film. It's uh, I saw it a lot later though than when it first came out, so it hasn't made my list, but I do like, well, I always had a big crush on Winona Ryder and right. Christian Slate is always good, but yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, I, th- I do think yeah. there's something about seeing that film when you're that high school age that, you know, yeah. um, I can understand why it might not make your list if you didn't. Yeah, there's, there's certain films, you, I mean, you've, you you watched it when you first came out. You had to stay with you if you're the right age. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, my my number nine is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, written by John Hughes and directed by Jeremiah S. Chechik. Chechik, yeah. Chechik, Chechik, yeah. Uh, Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Randy Quaid. I personally, I, I, it's my favorite of the vacation films. And it just it just cracks me up. So many funny bits. And I watch it's a, it's a Christmas staple. You put it on every every year. Sure. But it just it just makes me laugh. Can't argue with that. Another one that was on my short list did not quite make my list. Isn't that terrible? Ah, well, as, as we said, 1989, <laughs> yep. lots of good films. Yep. All right. Well, my number eight is Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, and, you know, just plain and simply, I love that franchise. I love all of the movies. Well, mostly the first three, but I even enjoy the fourth film. Um, and, you know, I just – I think that uh, – you know they're they're just very that much that quintessential 80s you know action comedy kind of thing that they don't really do that much anymore or do that well anymore and uh yeah i just i love the franchise you know mel, mel gibson and, and uh danny glover are just fantastic together so i had to make my list 
Yep, it's uh, it's a great film, and it's also my number eight. Wow, look at that. Yeah, we matched up early yeah, on. It never yeah. fails. At least once we're going to end up on the same one, huh? Yeah. Uh, and I'm still I'm still having a show whether I prefer Lethal Weapon 2 to Lethal Weapon. Yeah, I, I go back and forth on the two of them myself yeah. quite a bit. But yeah, I think I think you nailed it. I mean, I, and I also quite like Joss Ackland, though, with his own, you know, diplomatic immunity. <laughs> right, right. All that stuff, but... Uh, that's a good, as you said, they do. They got the balance of humor and violence and action. They got it. They got it really well in those films. Yep. yep. They don't seem to do it quite as well these days, do they? No, definitely not. Yeah. All right. Well, my number seven, I think, is not going to be the same as your number seven, and it is Troop Beverly Hills, which is definitely my uh, my odd man <laughs> no, out. It's, pick. It's, it's not on my list. I didn't think so. Um, Troop Beverly Hills is a movie. I just I I love it. I don't know what it is about the film. It stars Shelley Long. Um, actually, if you've seen uh, The Boss with, with Melissa McCarthy, which I don't recommend you do if if you haven't seen it, but um, <laughs> it, that the the boss basically stole everything from Troop Beverly Hills and then just ruined it. Um, but So basically Shelley Long plays this like spoiled, rich, you know, Beverly Hills housewife who ends up leading a Girl Scout troop mm-hmm. and, of course, tries to just buy them everything. But then eventually, you know, eventually she learns her lesson and becomes a good troop leader, uh, but, but never to the point where she loses what makes her a, a Beverly Hills, you know, rich housewife. And it's just a really funny movie. And Shelley Long is terrific in it. And, um, uh, you know, some of the girls went on to become well-known actresses and – it's a movie that it's funny. I saw it like yeah. when it came out on video. I think originally I watched it and I saw like the first half of it, and then I never finished it for like twenty years. <laughs> uh, and then I finally saw the end of it, and uh, now it's out on Blu-ray. And uh, it's just a really fun, fun movie, and and it holds up surprisingly well for being from the eighties. It's uh, I think that the humor lands a lot, a lot sharper than I would have expected a movie that's twenty five years old to, to do. So uh, definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it. But a movie I have a I have a definite, uh, really, a really soft spot for. It's just a film I, I truly enjoy. I th- I think I may have seen it when it. Found about when it came out, but I don't really recall much about it. Yeah, it's worth revisiting. It's surprisingly yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, there are some good good comedies from from the eighties. So yeah. yeah, I'll have to track it down again, sure. watch it again. Okay, my we on number seven, is it? Yes, yeah, my no. number seven is uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Very good. Which uh, at the time I absolutely I loved it. It's just since watching it more recently, it's it hasn't aged quite as well as the other others. But I remember going when it first came out. I remember going to the pictures about three or four times, maybe more, to go and see. It. I did the same. But yeah, it's great. Uh, I always liked Michael Keaton. I always liked the fact it was Michael Keaton playing Batman. And when it, when that was first announced, it was like, oh my God, he can't be Batman. And then when it, it came out, it was really good. Jack Nicholson was a cracking joker. I kind of wish they hadn't given us the whole, you know, he was the one who killed Bruce's parents. Right. But... Uh, I don't know. I always kind of liked that twist, actually. I always thought yeah. that was a cool way to tie things together. Yeah, it worked, suppose, yeah it worked for the film. Yeah. But uh, as I say, it has, it's, I don't think it's aged quite as well as some... Some ropey bits in it now, but uh, but no, it was a it was a great beginning for the Batman on the big screen. Sure, sure, excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, my number six is "Say Anything," starring John Cusack and Ioni Sky. And uh, I had a feeling this would be on your list. Yeah. Well, of course, it's John Hughes, and we all know I'm a huge John Hughes fan. But let's face it, it's John Cusack standing outside holding a boombox over his head. Within your eyes, blasting from it. I mean, you know, I, I love to overuse the word iconic, but I mean, really, if there is an iconic image from the '80s, I think that That's, has to uh, be in the top ten at the very least. Oh yeah, yes. but no, yeah, it's. Uh, I know what you mean. It's. A, I can't. It's been 
that scene has been used in so many other things. Yeah, I mean, people have done that in real life. I mean, even in recent years, people yeah. will go to someone's house and stand outside with their iPhone over their head, playing, a, you know, yeah. playing a song. I mean, it's just, it's just such a great moment. And, and I love the film as a whole, but I think that really all you need to say is John Cusack holding up a boombox, and you know, that's the whole reason why it makes yeah. my list. Well, it's an excellent list. I almost made my list, but again, I didn't quite see it at the time. Sure. And it's. Uh, yeah, I should watch it again, though, to be honest. It's been, a, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, my number six, are we? Yep. Yep, my number six is When Harry Met Sally. Very good. Written by Nora Ephron, directed by Rob Reiner, Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, Orgasm Scene. Uh, <laughs> yep. Witty one-liners. I, I just thought Billy Crystal was brilliant in it. Well, everybody was. Meg Ryan was brilliant as well. Right. Before she messed around with her face. Right. But uh, I just... It's a great romantic comedy. I think it's probably one of the best romantic comedies. Sure. Because it does, it gets the balance just right. And I just think it's perfect. Probably, yeah, perfect romantic comedy. No arguments here. And it's my, and it's my number six. All right, yeah, they cool. don't seem to do romantic comedies the same anymore either. No, no, that's true. <laughs> what do we sound like? A couple of, yeah. yeah. It's not, not as good as it was when I was. They don't younger. make films like that anymore. Yeah. Oh, what's going on? <laughs> Back in my scenes. day, they knew how yeah. to make romantic comedies. Yeah. Enough of that CG jiggery pokery. <laughs> All right. Well, my number five, speaking of movies they don't make uh, anymore, my number five is Field of Dreams, uh, which we tackled way back in episode eight. And uh, yes, yes. Just, a, you know, it's an amazing it's an amazing movie. It's a baseball movie, which, as you just said a little while ago, neither of us cares for the sport that much. We both love baseball movies. Uh, you know, yep. Kevin Costner's never been better and it's got the whole metaphysical thing. It's got the dad scene, which will make you cry at the end. I mean, it, you know, it's just, it's got humor. It's got you know, drama. It's got everything. And it's just, as far as I'm concerned, it is a magical movie and uh, I love it. So Field of Dreams is number five. Excellent. Okay. My number five is, well, you had uh, Leviathan and it's, uh, it's not Deep Star Six. It is The Abyss. Ah, very good. James Cameron, Ed Harris, Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio, Michael Bean. Uh, it's it's a deep sea oil rig. Things happen, and they get uh, press ganged in by the navy to go and try and rescue some people. And bizarre things happen: aliens, uh, madness. And it was a bit it's a bit slated at the time when it came out, but I've I've always loved the film. I've always I've always really enjoyed it. The director's cut obviously adds and expands on things, but even the normal cut, I've always. It's just always fascinated me. I think it was just the, the set. I mean, you did feel like you were underwater with them the whole time because they did film it underwater right. in a great big tank, didn't they? Yep. And Ed, Ed Harris has always been a favourite of mine and Michael Bean. And I just I, I just really love the film. And I really wish it would come out. They, I don't even think it's come out once on Blu-ray. No, nope, not Whatever yet. Whatever it has, it's, it's yeah. I can't understand why it hasn't had a big restoration big doodad restoration maybe 2019 we'll get it I, I mean you know it's bound to happen because it is a cameron film and yeah when it, when fox released it on video they definitely did some special editions like a two disc special edition. they know it has a cult following and yeah. i think they're maybe just i don't know maybe waiting for a slow quarter you know maybe they're making like the super deluxe four disc box set version because they know it's going to go the hardcore collectors will all be there for it you know yeah just crazy though but it's uh but yeah, that's my number five. All right, very good. Well, my number four is Dead Poet Society, starring Robin Williams. And uh, I mean, it introduced the phrase carpe diem to the yeah. pop culture lexicon. I think that, you know, Williams is brilliant in the movie. Um, this is a movie that makes me ball like a 
child every time I watch <laughs> it. I mean, it it the waterworks turn on and, and don't turn off. And I just, you know, I think it's a really great film. It's like, a, you know, it, it's really funny, but it has such dramatic parts to it. And I think that the overarching message of seizing the day and, you know, breaking against convention and doing, you know, following your dreams is, is such an important one. And, um, you know, it's one of those films that I always forget how much I like it. Yeah. And then I watch it again and I go, oh, my God, this really is one of the best movies. Like, it's such a good film. Uh, so it's my number four. And uh, it, if I had watched it more recently, it could have even been number one because, like I said, I forget how much I like it. But it's fantastic. It's 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 a great film and it's probably – I've not seen it in years. But as you say, I could probably – it's not made my list, but if I'd seen it recently, it might have been made the list. I can almost guarantee you yeah. that if you watch it again now, you, you'll go back and pencil it back in because it, yeah, it's just I, you forget how good it is until you sit down and watch it. Yeah, because I think it's been parodied in certain things. Remember, they did an episode of Community, which is right. Like uh, Jeff Winger's story was involved in around you know a teacher Tom sees the day. Yeah, yeah. But it's and lots of other things as well. So yeah, I could probably do with watching it again. But it is a great movie. Yeah, very much so. And of course, Robin Williams. He was he was so he was such a good actor. Yeah, he was so talented. Yeah. Okay, my number four is one you've already mentioned, Field of Dreams. Very good. Uh, brilliant film. We've talked about it plenty. And if you want to go back and listen to, uh, which episode was it? It was episode, episode eight. eight. Yes, episode eight, where we went after the endings of that and the natural. And it's worth listening to because I know the ending that I gave made my mum cry. <laughs> and me. <laughs> oh, it did make you... I yeah, got did, welled did, up yeah. a bunch of times yeah, during yeah, that episode, yeah. man. Yeah. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, so if you're in the mood to have a bit of a cry, yep. go listen to episode eight. Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, very good. Well, my number three pick is a film that has been on your list already, and it is The Abyss. Uh, and and actually, if I, I, I'm not going to lie, Phil. I was a little surprised it was only at number five on your list. It is one of my favorite films. I adore it. I think it's amazing. Um, as you said, I, I I like the original cut, but I do think that the director's cut, which is about a half yeah. an hour longer, it's not one of those director's cuts like you see on DVDs nowadays, or like you know extended edition. And it's like two minutes of extra footage. I mean, this one adds in a half an hour of footage, whole new storylines, yeah. and a completely different ending. And yeah. it it is. To me, it is just mind-bogglingly good. Yeah, because it's great. It's a whole scenes, big chunks of scenes. It's not like where they just extend the scene here and there. Right, it's... exactly. And I, I think that the original is is a good film. It's worth watching. But the second, the the, the director's yeah. cut to me is is the real film, and I just think it's it's amazing it's so epic and and so you know yeah. just so big in scope and so uh, the, the technical achievements of how they filmed that movie are really oh, really it's amazing just, it's, i've seen of like some makings of it's just oh yeah it's i mean fantastic. that's another reason get a get a decent blu-ray out with all the extras on showing how they made it and stuff yeah they really need to yeah it's it's one of those films which is sort of almost forgotten oh yeah it, you know it wasn't a big hit when it came out and then yeah. because they released the theatrical cut a lot of people didn't like it and it, it now has this very cult following of people like you and me and i'm sure a lot of our listeners who yeah. think it's this brilliant undersung james cameron film it's his it's his most overlooked film by far um but it is i, I mean i i think if you watch the director's cut of that film and you don't come come out of it blown away then you know then we have very different movie watching experiences that yeah. you know simple no, I, that. I quite agree with you and it, the, it would have been higher on my list any other year right but, but right just, but again yeah such a good but year. yeah lots of lots of good films very cool all right uh how about your uh number three then yeah, my number three is is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Excellent. Because it's Bill and Ted having an excellent adventure through time. Sorry, no, it's not Bill and Ted. It's Bill S. Preston. Esquire. Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Yes, exactly. And they are together well, they are Wild, wild stallions. stallions. It's just, it's stupidly good. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it just, it uses time travel. It's just, it's got that perfect. I love, I always love watching, I watched it a few months ago with my daughter. And at first she was going, oh, these effects are rubbish. And then she got into it and was, was laughing and everything. But it's just a bit where, I love the bits where the time travel, you know, near the end, they're going, remember the keys, remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the and it's just not, it, Yeah. Yeah. Because that's that's what you'd use time travel for. You'll go, oh, yeah, I couldn't get through this bit. So I need, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll do this after we finished it. Right. Brilliant. Right. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Judge, Judge Carlin as Rufus right. is fantastic. I, I'm a huge fan of Bill and Ted as a, as a franchise. Amazingly, it didn't make my list. Uh, it was on my short list, and I, I, I don't know, just didn't quite squeak in for some reason. Again, I had a really hard time with this with this week. I could probably do this move, list again next week and have completely different picks, but I do love it. I think the only reason maybe it didn't make it is because, uh, as I have mentioned before, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is my favorite of the two. And yes, so I, yeah, I feel yeah. like that's my sort of high watermark for the series. Uh, but I, I do love the first one, so an excellent pick. All okay, right. Okay, we're now in our the final two. Final two. My number two is Back to the Future 2. And I have a very um, odd love affair with this movie. I, I, know, I love the first film. I love the yeah. third film. But I've seen the second film about 100 times. And when it came out uh, on home video, I watched it over and over and over and over and over <laughs> again. I just love this movie. I love the whole structure of it, the way it goes into the future, then back into the into the events of the first movie. Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. yeah. Like there's a lot of meta to it. And then just so much of the humor with like, you know, the Jaws 19 and the all the, you know, the future humor and then all the different versions of Marty and his kids and everything. You know, it just there's something about the second one. I mean, if I have to pick a favorite of Back to the Future, I can I can recognize that Back to the Future 1 is the best of the three films. But if I had to pick one that I'm going to watch on a desert island, it would be the second one. I've just, I've seen it so many times. I never get tired of it. Yeah. I just absolutely love it. So that's my pick. I quite agree. And it's also my number two. All right. Nicely done. Yeah. Because it's uh, you got it spot on. It's it, it covered so much. It just it expanded on the initial you know idea and just went with it. Because, I mean, they could have just had the whole film set in the future. Right. But the fact that he went back, back to the past. Right. And then you had the two, then, Michael J. Fox watching himself from the first film. You know, like, yeah. oh, I love it. It was, it was brilliant, yeah. But yeah, it's my number two as well. I think you've covered it all. All right. Exceedingly well. Very good. Well, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that we might be on the same page for our first film, our number one film <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah. So um, I will just go ahead and say that my number one film is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's a bingo. All right. Yes. Um, I, I'll go ahead and say, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I've, I think it's pretty obvious why this ended up at both of our number ones. It's Indiana Jones, Steven Spielberg, Harrison Ford, of course. I mean, Indiana Jones is one of those characters. He's one of the greatest movie characters of all time. I will go so far as to say that The Last Crusade is actually my favorite of the Indiana Jones films, hands down. And I think partially because Sean Connery added such a great element to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also think that it... It has the most humor of the three films. Yeah. Um, and it also has just great visuals, great action scenes. You know, I, I like it's the big. sort of – Yeah, it's, it's big. big. It's big it? in scope. Yeah. You know, the whole thing with the, you know, the uh, you know, the Holy Grail is such a such – a, I mean, it's the Holy Grail. You know, it's the Holy Grail of yeah. things to go chasing after for a reason, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I love all of the Indiana Jones films. Well, the first three, but um, <laughs> hands down, this one's Might my save favorite. Them, yeah, Mike. Thank you. Uh, hands down, this one's my favorite. So yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, but you've. I mean, you've once again, you've covered it all pretty well. The the uh, uh, of course we had River Phoenix as well doing the the young indie. Yeah, which is, I, th- yeah, I thought it was a great, great opening. The whole origin, nice how they you know they even explain like the scar on his chin and everything and that you know it's yeah. so great. Yeah, I mean, poor River. I mean, just think if he was still knocking about now, 
we wouldn't have to put up with a Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. He could have just carried on with him as the uh, right. You know, re- redo it with with him as Indy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, brilliant film. I love the scenes. I love. I mean, I always love the bit where they think Indy's dead and they're looking over the cliff, and then Indy comes walking up. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And uh, Sean, Sean Connery shooting the the uh, the back of the plane off. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So many good things, and you know, you must choose wisely. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and of course, we get we also see Adolf Hitler in it as well. Right, right. Who it was? It was played by an actor who was over here. He was a. Uh, he was Mr. Bronson in a school drama called Grange Hill. Oh. And he was also it's also the same same guy. He was in The Empire Strikes Back. I think he's one of the Darth Vader kills him. Oh, he's one, one of the Imperial the officers. Yeah. Yeah. Right, cool. But yeah, that's our top ten films of nineteen eighty nine. Yes. Do you want to see how we got on with the the highest grossing films yeah, of nineteen eighty nine? Let's hear about the box office for the year. Well, we've got quite a few that are on the list, okay. but a few which aren't. All right. uh, number ten was born on the fourth of July. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Number nine was The Little Mermaid, which I was surprised wasn't on your list. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's right, because I do almost always pick a Disney film, don't I? Mm. I I have never loved The Little Mermaid, to be honest with you. It's a perfectly fine film. Um and maybe in a lesser year it would have made my list. I mean, I, I like it, but Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And I don't want to sound like I don't sound whatever. It's a little girly, you know what I mean. It's all about this princess <laughs> finding the love, and it's got it's got a lot of singing in it, you know, more than some of the other ones. And you know, it, it's a cute film that I enjoy, but I just it, it's never, you know, I, I know it kind of kickstarted the Disney Renaissance, but for me, that started with Beauty and the Beast. You know, that's where that yeah, really started yeah. getting good to me. Little Mermaid was just a, a fun film, but it's not one I love that much. So fair enough. Uh, number eight was Ghostbusters two. Almost made my list because I do I do think it's better than people give it credit for. Oh yeah, I think it's better than that, but it's still not as good as the first one. But yeah, it's like, and I also, as you probably noticed, I referenced it in my Hellboy two after the yep, ending. Yep, I did. I like that. Yeah. Uh, number seven was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, good, fun family which, film. Which right. Surprised me. It's a fun family film. I didn't realize it was that successful. It was a pretty big hit back in the day. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, number six, Lethal Weapon two. Very good. Number five, Dead Poet Society. Right. Yeah, Disney had a good uh, yeah. Yeah. One. Uh, number four was Look Who's Talking. Wow. Which uh, I'd pretty much forgotten about. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Willis as a baby. Yep. Uh, three, Back to the Future 2. Very good. Number two was Batman. And in first place, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Well, there you go. So we were pretty much on point with a lot of our choices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not far off at all. Yeah. But a very good year for film. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for good, for fun films, going to the cinema, having a good time at the cinema. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes for this week. So, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? We have something a little special coming up, don't we? Yes, well, as uh, as next week, we'll be getting ever closer to Halloween. <laughs> Ooh. <clears throat> Just doing, doing that voice, yeah. take it out of you a little, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we thought we'd do some a couple of uh, horror movies. We're going to go with Carrie, the original version, and The Cabin in the Woods. Because if you've seen The Cabin in the Woods and you know how it ends, it's going to be a tricky one for us to do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, yes, our, it's our, we... uh, what I'm going to call our first annual Halloween episode. Yes. Because I think, you know, we're probably going to do this every year, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think so too. Uh, we're going to also going to have a horror-themed Mighty Morphin mini feature. Yep. And we're at a special edition of our 100 Years of Hollywood, right? It certainly is because we'll be looking at our top 10 Horror films of the 1980s. Yeah, so didn't want to do our top 10 horror films of all time, but we figured we'll, we'll tackle it by decades. So we figured the 80s have yeah. some iconic horror movies, so we're going to go through our top 10 films of the decade. Should be quite an interesting list, I think. So Yeah, I think it's going to be a tough one as well because there's lots of classic yeah. classic horror movies yeah, from now. Yeah, absolutely. 
Should be a lot mm. of fun. So definitely join us for that special episode. Uh, Phil, quickly, why don't you tell people how they can get in touch with us if they want to uh, ask us any questions or share any opinions? I'm glad you asked. Yes, you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. And if you want to find us on Facebook, we're there, facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can find us on the podcast platform you're currently listening on, but we're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. And you can also reach us directly by emailing us at aftertheending at verizon.net. And with that, then, I think we shall wrap things up. So as always, we thank you very much for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Hello and blah, blah, blah. That's got to be a new record. I think that was like one word, literally, <laughs> and, I, and I already didn't like it. See, we're always breaking records. I know. But now, I mean, how much – we'll have to get into like syllables and letters and utterances to break that record. Yeah, it's, we can do it. <laughs> I'll have to mess up before I even say anything. That's true. We, If anybody can, we can. Yeah. So Jake effectively uh, does. That was terrible. <laughs> uh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. Yes, I'll lead you in. I'll just leave you hanging actually. How about that? Yeah. Keep me hanging. <laughs> yep. Indeed. I don't know why I said that. I don't really have anything better to say, apparently. <laughs> Just fill in space. Fill in the space. Hi, I'm Doug Jones. And I live for films. For God's sake, Doug, we're gone home. Just, that's it. Let it go. We've, we've got the point. Jesus, Doug.